you know, we were fighting five, six, seven times a day in direct contact with a very well-trained enemy mm-hmm. force. I mean, it wasn't a matter of if we were going to get in a firefight that day. It was when and how often and for how long, some lasting up to five hours where we're sling, slinging lead for that long. It's, uh, I, I tell you, for me and for the Marine Corps in general, it, it really redefined what we knew about urban fighting. Let's go. Welcome to Citizen. We've got a special guest today, Scott Husing. Uh, you were both enlisted and officer in the Marine Corps, so I half trust you, I guess, right? Um, but you started enlisted. That's the important part. I yeah, think. you don't go back. I think no, the you other can't. way. That'd, that'd be an that, interesting. Well, that'd be an interesting career path. Could you get demoted? I think you can only get demoted back to first. Never time, demoted. Right? Um, yeah, <clears throat> but uh, I did. I, I spent uh, just over four years enlisted, and then even when I was in college, I, I stayed in the reserves as a machine gunner mm-hmm. just to stay tied to you know what we do. And then um, yeah, I had no intention of going back on active duty, but. Uh, a young sergeant gave me a phone mm. call. His, his name was Sergeant Connor. I still remember his name out of Champaign, Illinois, and offered me a great opportunity. And uh, you know, some twenty-four years later, the rest is history. What was the what was the opportunity? Well, I was planning on going to work for U.S. Federal Marshals, mm. um, some sort of federal law enforcement, and um, he called me up. I had submitted a package. To, they have a program where you can go during two summers and then get your commission. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't it's like, really, was it called green to gold or some bullshit? That's, that's the, the yeah, the army term. Um, this program is one of several commissioning programs that Marine Corps has. It's called the platoon leaders course where you go to OCS for one summer, then you go another summer. But I was thinking, mm-hmm. man, that sounds like three boot camps, and I don't want to do three boot camps because I've already done one. Yeah. So when a boat space opened up, he said, if I, came down ran a physical ran a pft and got a physical he could get me to ocs in january and the rest is history because i'd always really wanted to give back i i i I love the marine corps it's was a you know big part of my life and um you know from a kid that grew up in waukegan illinois where i barely graduated high school with a 1.24 gpa um did much better in college but you can you can get this I, i share that not as a is a self-deprecating testimony, man. It's a, really a, a testament to what military service provides mm-hmm. and to try and show kids that struggle and inspire them that, that there's so many benefits of military service. And if I could come from that background, limited supervision growing up and spend 24 years, retire as a major and become a best-selling author, then there's, there's hope. Well, what was it, um, do you think about your upbringing that made you not give a shit. Cause I didn't care about high school either, but I, it was just like boring. I, I, you, I feel like there's a, there's a, a point of self-awareness that becomes dangerous when you don't have the, the guardrails, like you're talking about with the military or whatever it is, whether it's um, sports or, or career or, you know, some kind of project, whatever it happens to be, there's a point of self-awareness where you're like, I'm not going to use calculus. It's just not going to happen. So I'm not going to fucking pay attention to this old person trying to teach me this. You know what I mean? That's, that's my brain being masculine and wanting to go out and fucking do crazy shit. You know what I mean? Uh, that's, that's how it was for me. I wonder if that – does that resonate with you at all or was it something else? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I was a horrible student. It wasn't because I wasn't smart. Um, it, like many people – 
in the military community and, and veterans, they come from broken homes. Mm. I think that's the norm, not not the rule. Um, mm. It's, and it's I not think, the rule, but it's pretty... I, I think we're also born as some sort of protector. It doesn't mean you have to be mm. a, a, a door kicker in Ramadi, Iraq, or jumping out of airplanes or flying jets. I think there's a, a people that are born into that, and when you have a lack of structure and regiment, I think we seek that out as, mm. as humans. And people that join the military, I think they, they do form a very small segment of, you know, less than one half of 1% mm. that are willing to serve at such a very young age too, because yeah. um, I, I think that that's something that most people don't realize. I, you know, the 250 Marines that fought under my command in Ramadi, a year before that, they were probably playing high school football. Yeah. Yeah. Or smoking weed. Yeah. Or both, yeah. Right. Not telling the recruiter. Yeah, yeah. Wow, well, you yeah. never, never tell the truth to yeah, the recruiter. Yeah. I promise you. No, they're not telling you the truth, so don't tell them the truth. Um, so you enlisted first. Yes. Uh, what was the what like? What was going through your mind when you decided to do that? And what year was it? That was 1988. Okay. So um, we were kind of in a lull between Grenada and Panama. Was the year after that? So we yep. were kind of in a lull militarily speaking. Yeah. Right. I uh, again not. Being great in high school, I get a phone call from my buddy, uh, pick up the phone from 662-3427. Mm. He says, you got to come down here and meet these guys. I'm like, who? He says, I, I joined the Marines. I said, you did what? <laughs> and th this was pretty astonishing from this guy because he had, uh, was not really cut out for that. And, mm. you know, up until that point, I was I was a horrible kid. I was a horrible student. I had a motorcycle, was my first car. Ran from the cops, got caught by the cops, drank underage, fighting, you know, thrown in jail, got out of jail. And uh, I went down and met these recruiters. And you know how it is when you go in. There's camouflage netting, and they're all in their uniforms. And then they talk this mad game. And I really looked at these guys, and I thought to myself, self, I have never met a group of risk takers like these guys, and it's a perfect fit for me. Because that's who I was. What do you think it is about risk-taking that appeals to men, especially young men who are like trying to find purpose in their life? Because it's almost like we're taking uh, one part of you know the service and selfless sacrifice kind of situation, and, well, that's what I'm attracted to. It's the jumping out of planes, it's the kicking doors, it's whatever, right, that really appeals to us. It may just be a evolutionary biological trick to get us to do stuff but it is very appealing. that's a good question um i wonder what it is right because it's it's not just it doesn't just manifest in service it's also in sports or just fucking hanging out and doing dumb I, shit i think maybe that risk is that that sensory input when you're when you're kind of a seeker or you, you need a lot of high input i think that putting yourself in those risky situations or dangerous situations and Let's face it, that being in the military is not like working at IBM or State Farm sure, Insurance. No. There is inherent risk in everything we do from entry-level mm -hmm. training to the highest end of the spectrum being in, in combat. And um, But I think that, again, that small segment of population who are protectors, there's something in their DNA that makes them put themselves in those positions. And what did you think um, – so I'm assuming you didn't deploy – as a Marine, like, unless it's on a Mew, right? And your first enlistment. Like, what? Well, yeah. Like, were there so, I, yeah, you know, after Desert Shield, Desert Storm, um, you know, I kind of figured out the error of my ways mm. and uh, I hung up my rifle. Yeah. Joined the reserves as a machine gunner and did much better in college. So you're uh, an 0311 and you became an 0331. Yeah, 0331. Okay. And then uh, we, 
um, you know, I ran into Sergeant Connor and, um, you know, decided being an officer was mm-hmm. the best path. And, you know, I still wanted to be in the infantry. So I, I was lucky because uh, that's the thing they don't tell you as an officer candidate that uh, it's just being an officer should be good enough for you. Yeah. And there's, you know, the military occupational specialties, 0302, but they mess with you when you're going through training. There's a lot of jobs with threes and twos in them. So you got to do well. Yeah, you might end up in a chem engineering yeah. company or some bullshit like yeah. that and that's leaf eaters right you don't want to be yeah. around those well they, they they do it too where there's uh equal distribution of smartness and dumbness in the marine yeah. corps and every military services officers uh included in that uh algorithm that they use to to place us throughout the service mm-hmm. um but uh, i was very fortunate to stay in the infantry and be selected to you know go to the infantry officers course and it's uh it, it's tough it's a it's a it's a real bastion that tests young lieutenants and uh we don't advertise it like other branches of service so, yeah know, that's true yeah. yeah you don't hear much very about secretive marine about officers. how we train yeah. as marine officers yeah. in the infantry well you were so you you go through uh whatever it is you go through it's not ocs i would imagine we it's go through similar, ocs then the basic school then we go right across the street to the infantry officers course and it's not the same so we have iobc i think infantry yeah. officer basic course is what the army calls it yep and but you guys have soy so we just do um OSIT for infantry people. It's basic, mm-hmm. and then you go right into A school and do it all at one time. And I think the idea behind it is you're getting infantry training for the entire sequence instead of just getting lead feeder basic and then having to go relearn everything as an infantry yeah. man. Um, but it's how, how long is it for you guys? Well, we the, the thing is, you were prior enlisted. You have to go back to basic, right? No, you don't reserves, go back. Right? You don't go basic, but you do have to go to officer candidate school, yeah. which is, is different than boot camp. Boot mm-hmm. camp is a building process. Yeah. OCS is an evaluation process. Mm. Do you have the minimum requirements to potentially lead Marines in combat? And it's mostly run by uh, all staff enlisted. NTOs, all right? enlisted, yeah. yes. Like E7s and higher, I believe, right? Uh, there's some E6s. Mm, okay. So um, it's staff NCOs. Yeah, staff NCOs yeah. are higher. And um, you go through OCS, and then you go across the street to the basic school, which is six months. Mm. And, you, you know, the Marine Corps trains every single person as a rifleman. Right. Like, you're a rifleman first, then... You get your follow-on school, but um, that's. It, I like it that you mentioned that because throughout my career, I've always reminded officers and staff and COs uh, how we're trained. It, because you know, you get the as a, as a, as a higher level commander, you always get the staff and COs that love to make the lieutenant jokes and this that, or lieutenant's not doing this. I say, hey man, you got to remember everything they learned about officer and myself included came from a staff NCO. Right. So you're part of the training process and that training never stops your mm-hmm. entire career, whether yeah. it's four years or 24 years, you're the guys that train them. I, I wonder if part of that isn't to get them used to taking instructions from E6s and E7s when they arrive at their unit, because you can have a very good potential officer and a shitty NCO, and you're going to get a shitty officer. That's yeah. just the way it works. Are you going to have a headstrong officer sometimes that doesn't want to listen to their, uh, you know, their sergeants, and that's a problem as well. Yeah. But I, I feel like part of that process is specifically designed to make sure that lieutenants listen to sergeants. You know what I mean? Like no, I get, agree you're, to that. You're, you're getting yeah. used to it, which is a good thing, by the way. Well, it can be yeah. a good thing. Well, the the other thing too, and the arm the army does this as well. They just do it on a bigger scale, <clears> but you. You know, you take your average staff NCO and, or maybe he's a sergeant mm. an E5 and he's at that point where he has to go out on a, a B billet where mm. he's a recruiter or a drill instructor. Yeah. And now you've got maybe a really great squad leader, a platoon sergeant, 
and he atrophies for about three or four years. So when you're a young lieutenant, you come in as like, all I see is, you know, Sarn Holloway. Yeah. Like, I don't see the guy that was just out of his profession mm-hmm. for three years, and he has to relearn a little bit, um, catch up with the new tactics, techniques, and procedures. Whereas that lieutenant, he's just come through the the longest school, most professional school that the Marine Corps has to offer. Mm-hmm. So he really has the best knowledge. But it's a combination in, in that teamwork, I think, that, that makes units great. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, you want, you know – you kind of, you need that. Um, it, it's funny to me. I don't know if this works the same way in a, in a marine infantry company, but the roles kind of flip flop when you go from lieutenant to captain and you take over a company. Um, it seems like the roles flip flop a little bit. Like you're, if I'm out with my platoon and I'm an E seven, I'm I'm pretty much like my my lieutenant is doing a lot of administrative stuff, taking commands from higher and disseminating that stuff but I'm leading the tactical force on the ground. That isn't the case when you get to, when you're like your gunny or your first sergeant and, and uh, uh, well, in the Marine Corps, but your first sergeant in the army infantry, they're bullets and beans, right? Mm-hmm. And my commander's leading the tactical movements at that point, it kind of flip-flops right there. Is it the same for your gunny or your first sergeant when you get into a Marine, to, to the company level? Yeah, the gunny runs the logistics, first sergeant handles personnel reporting. Right. And then, you know, the as a, as a company commander, as a captain, mm. uh, your real job is to be a force supplier, mm. like making sure that every single different person within that element has what they need to succeed on the battlefield, whether that's intelligence, logistics, ammunition, chow, mobility, um, <coughs> and, you know, good quality of life, too. Yeah. I mean, staying, staying informed and providing information at, at all levels, I think. But, is but for Marines, though, you want to keep them a little pissed off. Right. Oh, that's part of our philosophy. We we keep Marines like you don't say it out loud, but you do it as a matter it's, of course, yeah. right? We, we are in a perpetual state of pissed offedness yeah. at every single point. I think, and uh, I think that's by design. Oh yeah, uh, just it's definitely by design. Keep us always complaining. If Marines aren't complaining, there's something vastly wrong with them. Yeah, it's like that. The infantry in the army is the same way, though. It's like if you leave us sitting around too long we're going to start fighting each other or we're going to start throwing rocks at each other something's going to happen right you got to fucking it's like the the devil's hand yeah it, no, yeah if, there, if there's if there's an enemy to fight they will fight each other that's yeah. a, that's a fact that's and, good though so you you're a uh, lieutenant for a while and then the wars start to kick off and you become uh uh you're a lieutenant you're a platoon commander we call them platoon leaders you're a platoon commander over a fast company mm-hmm. uh, or in a fast company rather i don't know that a lot of people outside the Marine Corps know what that is. So you can explain that. So uh, it's actually a captain's billet. So you're, mm. you're a captain. So you were frocked. You were uh, no, I, was, I got promoted. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I'd already done four years as a mm, lieutenant okay. and that, that was a B billet. And what was mm. cool about being with a fleet anti-terrorism security team is uh, one it's anti-terrorism. So we'd have other captains that would show up and they think they're going to be bungee cording through skylights. I'm like, no, 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 not counterterrorism. Mm. Anti-terrorism and that organization within the Marine Corps actually works directly for Chief Naval Operations, mm-hmm. and the, the Marine Corps is a department of the Navy. Yeah. So we have you know very close relationship, but that's who we take our tasking from, and we are a nine one one force within the Marine Corps, who's always the first to fight, and we're stationed around the world, uh, pre-positioned, and they, they have a very specialized skill set. And the great thing about being a platoon commander in fast company is normally there's another captain with you who's junior 
but you're you're condition one the whole time you're traveling around the world you're, you're in a lot of different remote locations um and you know to be quite honest you're in command um so i had three years of command time with fast and then um i kind of skirted the you know recruiting duty or going down to the drill field or a pentagon tour because I, I was very, very lucky, man, because I was either a Marine or I was leading Marines the entire 24 years I was in the Marine Corps. How does that work with the deployments for a fast company? Like what's, your, what's the decision-making process about where you are and when? Is it just like needs of the Navy or how does that work? Yes, they uh, have units that are pre-staged uh, around the world in the Pacific Rim, in the Mediterranean, um, and in, in continental United States. And then uh, urgent tasking statements come from chief naval operations. They'll request it, and then they'll get deployed. Mm. So, like, if you go back to – I don't know if you've had Mark on the show, Mark Geist, 13 mm, Not hours. yet. No, I know um, I was, though, yeah. yeah. Good dude. He is. Um, but, you know, when that whole uh, event went down, there, there was a, a fast company that mm. was in Rota, but the, resp- the response time to send them for the events that as they unfolded so, so rapidly, it probably wouldn't have been a utility. Um, so I know there was a lot of – consternation like why didn't the fast team deploy to go mm-hmm. down and support him like that fight was over so fast even though they were on a five-hour tether yeah someone didn't foresee that that was that was the problem is those guys should have been flown down there in pre-stage at the embassy in benghazi well before that you know boiled over into the the cauldron that it was um yeah that's really interesting so you you're on this fast team for a while. That's pretty good experience, I would say, probably outside of just the normal platoon command because you're not just um, moving around more and having to deal with that and dealing with a more dynamic environment. Look, not that a fucking infantry deployment is not dynamic, but this is for career building. It's probably because you're interfacing with a lot of different types of people. Yeah. You know what I mean? You deal with a lot of State Department officials, a lot of senior Navy, and as as a young Mm -hmm. captain, you're you're briefing some senior-level people, Mm -hmm. and then – you're working with NSW. Um, you know, we trained with the SEALs. We did interoperability with them and, and, and missions in the Mediterranean. And, you know, it's one of those jobs where here I am today. I'm cross-decking from a U.S. Navy destroyer, mm. which doesn't have any Marines on it ever, yeah. to a whatever Icelandic flag ship. And we're doing a ladder climb in Sea State 3 to safeguard, you know, weapons parts to get into mm. the Persian Gulf. So it was... It was pretty fascinating, and, and yeah, it was, again, a lot of risk. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But uh, the group of guys that were there are all hand-selected, too. So it, as, a, as a platoon commander, it, uh, it makes your job pretty easy. It's hand-selected by you? They get hand-selected by the Marine Corps. Okay. So they, they can go from entry level um, straight out of boot camp to the School of Infantry to their secondary MOS. Um, but then they have to get highly screened. Um, there's more of a psychological screening and background. And then all the NCOs are handpicked to go to Fast Company because of the level of responsibility. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would send guys off. Again, when you think of a sergeant in the Army or the Marine Corps, you don't really understand that that's a 22-year-old kid. Yeah, yeah. You know, and he's, he's in charge he's, of and he's six in, other people. Uh, yeah, he's in charge of you know, 12 to 15 guys yeah. On, yeah. Uh, on a merchant marine ship mm-hmm. or a, a commercial vessel transiting the Straits of Gibraltar into, uh, you know, Siganella and, you know, he's responsible for all the weapons and, and that whole team of Marines. So yeah, it's a lot of responsibility for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then for you, the next step is, uh, uh, you go to two, four and you take over command of a company. Um, that's quite a bit different, right? 
Like the role yeah. changes quite a bit from I, you, you have more of a personal relationship, I think, as a platoon commander, especially doing a, a slice job like you were doing. Probably, you know, those guys personally. Yeah. As a company commander, you try to, but it's a lot of dudes. You know what I mean? Yeah, we we have uh, we have different relationship, I think, in the, in the Marine Corps, too, than some of the other services. Mm-hmm. Ar- the Army is very similar to what we do, and I'm a big fan uh, of the army because, you know, I, I fought under one, one BCT in Ramadi, mm-hmm. but when I found out I was going to the second battalion, fourth Marines, which is affectionately nicknamed the magnificent bastards. Mm-hmm. Um, I was pretty happy. And, uh, I, they graduated me and a couple other guys early from school in Quantico, which is kind of our preparatory school to, to become a commander. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, so I didn't walk the stage to get my diploma or anything. Mm. I just went straight out, drove across the country, uh, checked in on a Tuesday. On that Thursday, I took command. And then that next week, we were up in 29 Palms doing combat training, getting, getting ready to go. And so it was baptism by fire for a lot of the guys. But I was really lucky again. I, mean, I had a whole slew of sergeants and corporals and, and some of the staff and CEOs that had been in Ramadi in 2004 when that fight started which some call the, the first battle of Ramadi. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a second battle of Ramadi in 06 where we fought again. But I, I'm, my position is it, it was a two-year battle in that city uh, for the most part. But when we took command, we had a very, very intense workup cycle. I, I literally lived in my office. I did, found no utility in even getting an apartment out in town, and the Marines hated me for that, um, for sure, because I was never gone. But... I think we had a really good opportunity to ramp up for the 15th Mew, which at the time was the theater reserve for Central Command in, in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And it, it took a lot a lot of factors, a lot of things going wrong and going badly in Iraq at the time for the president to commit the theater reserve because right. that was it. With those 2,500 Marines that were afloat on yeah. those ships was us. Yeah, we did the same. So my uh, 82nd unit... We were the DRF-1 at the time, and they deployed us early to go to the surge. To, we, we took over uh, Sadr City, basically, yeah. for about a year and a half. Um, same kind of deal. It's like, no, this is like a break in case of emergency situation, not a normal deployment to a previously occupied area. But yeah. I guess during that time from 06 to 08, that was like the meat and potatoes of that particular yeah. war, I think. It was pretty rough over there. Um, so you guys left in... Uh, what late 06 or when was it? We yeah we took off in um, late 06. It was on November 10th, the Marine Corps birthday, when the Mew commander stepped out on the flight deck of the USS Boxer and told us that we had just gotten orders to go into Iraq. And what happened was because the Mew is so big, a Marine Expeditionary Unit, there's uh, a ground combat element of about that goes from about 800 to 1200 Marines when all of the enablers or support staff join us Um, but even then they still chopped us up some of the units went up north to haditha dam some went over to camp korean village Um, and then myself and my buddy john smith we got sent to ramadi which you know is during the surge i I always i always remind people that are listening to stuff like this that the surge in 06 things were going so badly uh, for a lot of a lot of the units that it was like a giant game of whack-a-mole. Um, yeah. You had insurgent forces popping up in one city like Fallujah or, uh, you know, Baghdad. And, you know, we'd hammer them down and to find powder and they'd go to ground mm. and then they just wait. 
till we got static and they'd pop up in another city and they'd, they'd kick some ass. And they were pretty good fighters. Mm-hmm. So when they flooded the battle space in 06 and 07 with an additional 20,000 troops of Marines and soldiers, it really allowed us to apply pressure in all those cities. And it just so happened that in 06, Ramadi's really where they wanted to fight. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were fighting five, six, seven times a day in direct contact with a very well-trained enemy mm-hmm. force. I mean, it wasn't a matter of if we were going to get in a firefight that day, it was when and how often and for how long, some lasting up to five hours where we're sling, slinging lead for that long. It's, uh, I, I tell you, for me and for the Marine Corps in general, it, it really redefined what we knew about urban fighting mm-hmm. because um, they, they were going at it. I mean, they were, they were a very well-trained and, and determined enemy. Right now, get up to 55% off your subscription when you go to babble.com slash citizen. This holiday season, if you're looking for a unique gift that inspires curiosity, travel, and culture, give yourself the gift of Babbel. Babbel is the language learning app that sold more than 10 million subscriptions, and thanks to Babbel's addictively fun and easy bite-sized language lessons, you'll finally be able to discover the wonder that comes with learning a new language. With Babbel, you only need 10 minutes a day to complete a lesson, so you can start having real-life conversations in a new language as little as three weeks. Other language learning apps use AI for their lesson plans. Babbel lessons were created by over 150 language experts and voiced by real native speakers, not computers. Their teaching method has been scientifically proven to be effective, and with Babbel, you can choose from up to 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. Plus, Babbel speech recognition technology helps you improve your pronunciation and accent. There are so many ways to learn with Babbel. In addition to the lessons, you can access podcasts, games, videos, stories, and even live classes. And it comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. So start your new language learning journey today with Babbel. Right now, get up to 55% off your subscription when you go to babbel.com slash citizen. That's babbel.com slash citizen for up to 55% off your subscription. Babbel, language for life. This episode is brought to you by ghostbed.com forward slash drink it bros. Ghostbed. It's the best bed in the world. It's the most comfortable. Sheets, pillows, the whole thing. I've got them all, man. And, you know, they wanted to extend their best possible offer to Drink It Bros. They've been with us for a very long time. So this is the email they sent us. We want Drink It Bros to get the best offer. So I updated the code for 50% site-wide. That's 50% site-wide. Use the code Drinking Bros. Drinking Bros with no G. For 50% off site wide everything that you buy on this site is going to be 50 percent off again they get the best pillows sheets mattresses they get the mattress protector uh if you're if you're sloppy and spill things and you don't want to jack up your mattress they have pretty much everything you need they've got weighted blankets now they've got the adjustable base which we really like i've got one in my home so go to ghostbed.com forward slash drink it bros use the code drink it bros for 50 percent off site-wide and don't forget about their pay-as-you-go plan if you're with approved credit you're going to be able to pay this thing off over the course of three to five years for 25 to 35 bucks a month it's nothing go to ghostbed.com forward slash drink bros today and use the code drink bros for 50 percent off this episode is also brought to you by blackriflecoffee.com the best coffee in the world as a matter of fact they won both the gold and bronze medal at the golden bean awards this year for their exclusive coffee club entries in the elite category. So the best coffee on earth literally 
was Circus Bear by Black Rifle, one of their ECS. So I recommend that you go sign up for the Black Rifle Coffee Club. Use the code CITIZEN. You're going to get those points off. And, uh, you know, you get all the benefits for being in the coffee club. You get the free shipping. You get access to all the partner deals. Uh, uh, you get access to the exclusive coffee club. You get access to any new products that come out before anybody else does. You know, it's a very large club that they have over there. And the coffees are premium. Every single one of them is good. Uh, you, you're going to get experience for you. You can do just the plain coffee club. And if you want your two bags of, of uh, espresso or your two bags of silence or smooth or whatever it is you drink, you can get those two bags or one bag or whatever you want every month or and or rather you can use the ECS, the exclusive coffee club and get access to some of the most premium coffees on the planet and kind of learn what it is that you like. You know what I mean? So then you can order those premium coffees from Black Rifle as well. So, and we all know they got the best branding, the best merch, and they're buddies. You know, we're all friends here. Uh, we love Black Rifle. So go to blackriflecoffee.com, sign up for the coffee club, or buy something. Do whatever you want. Um, use the code CITIZEN. You're going to get those points off. This episode is brought to you by firstform.com forward slash citizen. Free shipping on all orders over $75 when you use the link. And you're not going to spend less than 75 bucks. I mean, they get the best products in the world, especially the OptiGreens. You know me, I don't eat vegetables um, because they're fucking pointless. So I supplement with OptiGreens 50 from First Form. It is precisely formulated green superfood powder meant for overall immune system support and digestive health. It's really good, aside from just getting the daily greens into your body that you need, and make sure, by the way, you're taking this with MCT because you have to take anything like this with MCT. 80% of your immune system is located in your gut and your digestive tract, right? So healthy digestion is essential for overall health and wellness, not to mention that most of your serotonin, I think 96% of your serotonin or 94% is made in your gut as well. So you're going to be in a better mood. You're going to feel better physically, and you're going to feel better mentally if you are taking these greens. OptiGreen 50 has 50 chosen ingredients, uh, effectively dosed. It's not necessarily how many ingredients there are, though, but it's, a, it's about the right amount of each. Taste and texture, no, like no other product in the market. It's not gritty. It doesn't have a weird flavor. It's got sweet berry flavors, actually. 100% uh, of the greens are all grown and manufactured inside the United States, and they are bioavailable. Now, they've got other products as well. They've got the Microfactor, which you see behind me on every show, uh, and I take them every day. You know, you got essential fatty acids, CoQ10, you get all the stuff you need in one little packet for your daily vitamin pack. And you mix that, you, you make yourself uh, uh, OptiGreens 50 shake, and you, and you take those pills with it, and you're going to improve your life precipitously. You're going to feel better, you're going to look better, so on and so forth. So go to firstform.com, that's 1-S-T-P-H-O-R-M.com, forward slash citizen, use the code, you're going to get free shipping on all orders over 50 bucks. And yeah. in 06, we had more forces in the city. And I worked for 1-1-BCT, and I got farmed out to a couple different army units, Task Force 1-9 Infantry, mm. Manchu, love them, 177 um, Armor, Steel Tigers. Um, and they used the Marines, as I, as I write about in my book, as this his blunt instrument of war, mm. where these commanders like, holy, holy crap, Scott's got how many Marines? Mm. I had 200... And, and 59 Marines, soldiers, and, and sailors in my company at the time. And I was pulling guys left and right, sitting on the fob. I'm like, what do you do? You look like a strange ranger. Like, oh, I'm a, I'm a PSYOPs guy. And uh, we take them. So our, I think our company's strength grew to over 300. And mm. 
that really allowed <clears throat> the army to i mean those soldiers that were sitting in place out there they were down to about 80 to 90 soldiers per yeah. company and here i come in rolling in with all these marines so i kind of look like a rock star yeah i mean and, for, for comparison's sake an infantry company in the army should be about 160 people yeah so you're looking at like half strength maybe 55%. yeah because they, they'd been taking it so hard in mm -hmm. ramadi um over the past eight months when one nine infantry had been there and then they stayed probably that long out even after we left and transitioned over the west part of the the country but uh, they they had suffered so many casualties and you know dead and wounded it was it, it was an eye opener for sure i mean it yeah. uh, you know when you think about fighting in the city um and you know solder city man that mm -hmm. place was a was a we took fire from the moment we up. crossed the boundary yeah. until the moment we left every single time no matter yeah. what time of day it was i've never seen anything like that before in my life no it was wild as no hell. it was it, it was going on in in a lot of places um in 0607 and um you know, we were just really fortunate to have great soldiers that we were fighting alongside. And Chuck Ferry was the task force commander, and uh, he just gave me a lot of responsibility, but also a lot of autonomy to operate a little bit differently, a little more independently. And um, they provide us with a ton of support. But it was, uh, I, I, I'll tell you this, to be honest, it, it, as successful we were, it, it would not have been um, that way if it wasn't for the leadership at every mm -hmm. level. And I'm talking from young sergeants and corporals to the lieutenants yeah. that we have that was their first time in the Marine Corps. And then the first time being in combat after graduating um, from IOC, but it was, uh, they took care of each other and, and me, man, better, better than anything I've ever experienced in my life. Yeah. Uh, it was that 2004 period was pretty rough in both Fallujah and Ramadi. I think two, four was in Ramadi. Yeah. And that first time, uh, and then, psh, was it one five maybe that was in Fallujah? I don't remember who it was, but they were. Um, it was different back then. So a bunch of those guys that were in Fallujah got charged, or they got investigated, never charged uh, for walking through buildings and double tapping bodies and shit, um, because their buddy a couple of days ago had gotten blown up by a fucking half dead guy with a grenade under him. Right, he rolled over and popped a pen and blew the room up. It's like. Uh, Nelson was the guy's name. I can't remember his first name, but I remember his last name. He got charged, but they dropped the charges. But it was like, do you not know what a limit of advance is? Like, we're, we're clearing buildings here. Until I walk past him, I can still shoot him. He's an enemy combatant until I walk past him. That's what the rule says. Yeah. But it was weird how I would have expected – I know uh, NCIS is different than other branches of military justice, or if you want to call it that, but that was really bizarre to me that – um, it was really bizarre to me that military prosecutors would come after an infantry guy for going through a house shooting already dead bodies. That's That was weird. Like, I don't know, we were trying to win the PR war still then or some shit. I don't know what the fuck that was well, about. Yeah, I, th I think that from the big picture, we, we definitely took off the iron fist and, and slipped on the velvet glove way too soon in the oh, process yeah. of the war. Um, you know, when it comes to war crimes and, and how young men operate and women operate on the battlefield, I think that when things like that happen, fundamentally, it's a, it's a leadership failure and, and a, an accountability of leadership. And there's plenty of other stories throughout you know, 20 years of war that we've endured that we can take note of. Uh, you know, there was, um, 
you know, the Gallagher trial, Fred mm. Galvin, the Marsoc seven, um, you know, all guys I know too. And, you know, there's, there's also instances where I think that, you know, as a professional soldier, let's just say you take a detainee. What, once you put the cuffs on someone that, that human life mm. becomes your responsibility sure, yeah. and, and, and you are working on the battlefield in, in, in those situations under such limited information if we'd allowed soldiers in any way, shape, or form to become judged during execution, or once you have someone in custody, I, I, I think any parent wouldn't want their kid to be doing that. I know you want to give them the autonomy and freedom to come home and survive and, and have lethality on the battlefield, but it's the same thing if, you know, God forbid your kid would be put in handcuffs. Like, mm. that doesn't give cops the authority to do whatever they want no. to them. It's the same rules that apply for the law of war and the basic rules of engagement or or you know, fundamental rule of law is that's how we have to operate on the battlefield. And there are certain environments where it is really restrictive that frustrate people at a lot of different levels. Mm. Um, we, we were very fortunate in Ramadi in 06 that we had very few restrictions. Um, mm. Our rules of engagement were very permissive because everybody in the city of over 300,000 people were essentially deemed the enemy. Yeah. So yeah. it was. I mean, uh, it, it becomes uh, a big problem, I think, when you try to get warriors to be cops. Absolutely. And we, that that happened to us in the 05 period. I would say mid 04 to 05 period, and it happened again towards the end of uh, the surge as well. Like they like, all right, we've we've demoralized the enemy. Now we're going to get black because we Westerners think in these very myopic short-term yes. goal-setting things like yeah we elect a new president every four years these people are still going to believe what they believe a thousand years from now right so you can't fight them that way it doesn't you, make sense you hit you the nail on the head I, I it's a great reminder to americans and, and our american hubris that you know we th we as marines especially we're, we're really good at a lot of things one of them is blowing stuff up you know what we're really bad at building stuff up. And, mm -hmm. and throughout this war in Iraq and Afghanistan, we never had a plan at the outset for this. And Americans with their, you know, that American hubris and our piddly 250-year existence, mm -hmm. we thought we were going to roll into a culture that's been around for 4,000 years and, and change it with American democracy. Well, you know, I've talked about this with several friends. Like, well, it's because we thought we did it in the Marshall Plan and we did it in Japan, right? Yeah, we were absolutely they the worst had... students of history, yeah. too, because we did not learn from those lessons in the yeah. European theater, in the Pacific. Yeah. Well, they theater. were already a lot like us. I mean, Japan was feudalist. Europe was feudalist. That's something that a de democratic structure can work with, right? Because there's some level yeah. of democracy, even though it's concentrated at the governor or warden level or whatever you want to call it. it are, that infrastructure exists. People in the Middle East had no idea what individual liberty meant. You no. can't force somebody to believe that shit if they don't already believe it. You know no, I mean? you can't. And the other thing, too, is a lot of people think there's it's American democracy. It's like, no, it's, it's, there's no such thing as American democracy or French democracy. It's just democracy. There's one flavor, and it has to be seeded and rooted and, and cultivated in the culture. But mm -hmm. if the culture doesn't want it, that's where we, we, we came into a lot of problems. In Afghanistan, which was apples and oranges from Iraq, um, as far as development goes, it's really hard. And I wrote about this um, in Echo and Ramai too, is that you've got the wrong people for the wrong jobs, teaching the wrong lessons to people about governance and infrastructure mm. and how to do that in a country where 
at best, you're talking to a tribal leader who's 35, 45 years old in mm-hmm. some cases that doesn't even know what a globe is. He doesn't even understand about the earth, let alone where he's at on a map. So when you're trying to do that, I think that, again, as American hubris, we wanted we always want things so fast. We want fast food. We want fast cash at an ATM. We want fast democracy in the Middle East. But they never really devoted a, a plan to do that, to go back in and build things back up like they did in the Pacific Theater after World War II or in the mm. European theaters. I so. mean, it took, we still have bases in Europe and Japan. Yep. Yep. We still provide economic aid to both of those places now. You know what I mean? It's like Absolutely. And, and the, the, the one fundamental thing that you need to have for democracy to survive is great economic throughput. Mm. And we you didn't see that happening in the Middle East or Afghanistan. And let's face it, Afghanistan is never going to be Sweden. It's never going to provide us with anything that we need as far as any sort of commerce. It, it just wasn't. But Iraq was a different story. So I wrote this article in um, as I was leaving the theater in, in 07. It's called Walmart Wins the War or something where – you just didn't see those people like titans of industry like Walmart or Home Depot going over showing these kids in the in the Middle East that there's more to life than just a soccer ball and you can get your teeth fixed and eyes fixed at, at Walmart and have a halal cheeseburger or whatever it is. But no one in America from the from the economic standpoint or from an industrial standpoint wanted to plant a flag in Iraq. And I agree with you. I think when kids were rolling out of boot camp now they should have been talking to each other like, where are you getting stationed? Oh, I'm going to Stuttgart in Germany, or I'm going to Okinawa, Japan, or I'm going to Al-Assad, Iraq, where we left the footprint, not as occupiers, but to stay there and show them what right looks like. And we failed to do that. And here we are 20 plus years later with really nothing to show for. And I think that creates a lot of anxiety for especially a lot of the guys that fought on the ground, like door kickers and yeah. Even the pilots that were flying over to support us. I mean, it took me 20 minutes of landing in country and performing operations to realize that we weren't doing a goddamn thing there. You know what I mean? I mean, we were stirring up the hornet's nest. We were having some fun, to be honest, as a psychopath. You know, yeah. I'm having a good time over there. But we had these Fox News reporters embedded with us. And I'm like pulling security. And this woman's behind me asking me questions. And she's like, oh, what do you think about this? I'm, I'm like, I don't think you can force somebody at gunpoint to believe the way you can. All they got to do is fight back forever. And she was like, all right, cut. (laughs) I will will say that, you you know, that's a very pessimistic attitude that a lot of soldiers had. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not saying you Mm -hmm. personally, but I'm probably labeled as a pragmatic optimist Mm -hmm. on most days. And, you know, as we fought, even even in Ramadi, this city of over 300,000 that was literally boiling over and spilling into the burners every single day we fought, we did it amongst the people. The men and women and children that had nowhere to go, and they weren't collateral damage. They they were people. I mean, they they helped us on some days. They fed us hot chai at night. Um, they gave us blankets to keep us warm in their houses, even after we kicked them out and used it as a, a hasty firm base as we're patrolling through the city. But they just wanted to grow up and you know see their kids go to school and mm-hmm. drive a car for the first time. So it, it's a very dynamic situation, especially in urban combat which will be the future of all combat as we mm-hmm. move forward to, to, to really deal with that and then compartmentalize it as you're fighting and surviving and then figure out, well, what do I do with all this now? Yeah. Well, the complexity of it is, I guess, supposed to be a guardrail to not go into the, uh, not go into the act 
uh, all willy nilly for lack of a better phrase, right? Like yeah. how, how difficult it is to accomplish should give people pause to reflect on whether or not we can actually accomplish what we're setting, setting out to accomplish. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, there's this uniquely American mission creep over the years. I don't know. I've never seen it in another country before where an entire industry pops up around a problem and then the problem must persist. Otherwise the industry goes away. And I'm talking about the military industrial complex, but I'm also talking about social justice warriors and breast cancer awareness and all this other bullshit, like uh, teachers unions, these industries pop up around an, uh, around a particular problem that we want to solve. Fem feminism is another one that we solve the problem more or less but the industry must persist. So we have to find new forms of racism, new forms of feminism, new forms of nation building we need to go do or whatever the fuck else, right? It's like the, the purpose, I guess, uh, of <clears throat> the complexity of the situation is to remind us that we can't do all these things. We haven't figured out how to cross the finish line. You yep. know what I mean? We just don't, I don't know. I don't understand. Well, I know why we can't because people are making money off of it. That's the short answer, but there it's deeper than that because there's buy-in from the people as well. It's not just about the corporate interest. People want that as well. Well, we never really defined what winning was. And definitely not I, in either one of these. Two no. Wars. It, no, I mean, what would it have been? A, a, the, the Taliban ruling the country, I guess, right? Well, at the uh, at the administrative level, there was winning was never defined, and mm -hmm. and that that was a problem for the individual soldier and marine on the ground too. Is um, how do you articulate that to them as as a commander, and let them know what they're doing every single day, risking their lives, mm -hmm. surviving in, day in and day out, is, is worth it. Yeah, beyond and, and beyond I, it being worth it though, like when you run a business, you have a mission statement, right? Uh, at Black Rifle, our mission statement was we provide coffee and culture to people who love America, right? So the, the general idea behind that is no matter what department you work in, when you're doing your job, is what I'm doing and how I'm doing it, does it support that particular mission? And when you give even the lowest private, like, hey, this is the end state that we're looking for, then he knows that, that they're not idiots. They're making conscious decisions to support that end state because they want to yeah. fucking go home. You know what I mean? And you're, like, if you don't give them that... It was pretty obvious in World War II. Kill Hitler, and yeah. we're out, right? Well, in 06, 07, our, our mission was kill or capture anti-fighters. <laughs> yeah. That was it. It yeah. was pretty simple. Um, but I think even with the failed withdrawal in Afghanistan, and again, those wars are two completely separate, mm -hmm. and I was in both of them in both theaters, but I, I think it was important to remind people, too, that not only the soldiers and Marines that fought and everybody else, mm -hmm. but, but America is that, you know, we— we tried to give the peace-loving people of those cultures hope. And, and I think with, with more buy-in from the administrative level, I, I think we might have succeeded. Um, but you can't guarantee an education for, for an Afghan girl and then pull out wholesale and just leave them because it goes back to exactly how it was. Mm -hmm. And I think that when you've diminished that hope, you, you erode the, I guess, the credibility of our country abroad. Um, so when we come back to those regions and hopefully we won't have to soon. But I mean, if you can look at the political and social landscape now is yeah. it, it's, it's always a 10 year cycle, man. You, mm. you get it is there's these it's a sine wave of war and post-war and it goes back and forth. And, you know, for me, it's hard to believe that the battle of Ramadi is we're coming up on a 20 year anniversary. It's, it, it really does fly by fast, but yeah. we've, we've managed to really honor the, 
the people that fought in those wars and, and, and share their stories, I think is important. It's important to stay tied into the veteran community. And, and again, at the beginning and end of every day, if you're not waking up trying to help someone beside yourself, I, I think it's all for naught, man, honestly. Yeah. Well, that's the one thing that kind of, um, whether you were, you know, in the military or some other kind of service, that's the kind, that's the thing that I, I believe attracts all of us to one another. I mean, you, you hear about, you hear the phrase military and first responder used a lot, right? As if the two were interchangeable. Now they're very different jobs, obviously. Um, <clears throat> but this instinctual predilection to help other people and use your strength to protect them, I think is something that kind of has defined uh, the best in humanity, you know, as far as long as we've been a species. And it's something that gets weaponized against us a lot, I think, right? Like you use that honor and integrity for your own benefit a lot, not you, but like the government likes to do that stuff. But it doesn't matter. And that that's, I, I say that because a lot of people become disaffected, black-pilled, whatever the fuck you want to call it now. That uh, is loser bullshit, by the way. That's just like you're quitting. Like uh, Sigma, all the Sigma male bullshit where it's like, oh, girls were mean to me back in the day, so women don't matter anymore. It's like, shut the fuck up, dude, you fat retard. Um, <clears throat> but there is, as much as I am critical of that position, it is a problem, right, that people are, as you, as you say, internationally, but even domestically, losing faith in the idea that is America, right, and all the things that we... You know, we took Western civilization. We're like, hey, we like this. We don't like this. We like uh, masculinity. We like uh, uh, individual liberty. We like freedom of speech. We like the right to protect ourselves. We don't like feudalism. We don't like kings, blah, 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 right? Uh, We don't like censorship. So we tried to take all the things we like and make it an idea that is a country that should be resilient against all these external forces. And here we find ourselves captured by them once again, you know? and I feel like that's, it is our failure, frankly, that that's happened. But the only way we can fail, you mentioned it before, um, the success of a lot of these military operations happen because of the courage and professionalism of lower enlisted people. But the, our job is to train and empower those motherfuckers, right? Sergeants win wars. That's how it works. Yeah. And if we don't train our sergeants and give them the, both the autonomy and power to fucking do that shit, then that's our failure. It looks like they're failing, but really it's us. Yeah. Well, it, you know, what you're talking about, too, really kind of works its way into what we're dealing with right now. The, the biggest battle we're facing right now militarily is this recruiting crisis. Mm. And the Army failed to recruit 22,000 last year. The Navy, 10. Air Force, 10. They sat in front of Congress in March, and the Air Force flat out said, yeah, we're not going to make it this year again. And uh, the Marine Corps barely squeaked by, and I can't believe they were even bragging about it, 21. There were 21 uh, recruits over. But they're not talking about the retention problems, mm-hmm. too. And, and it, this is interesting because guys um, like me um, who, who also have kids, we're not telling our kids to join the military for the benefits of military service. And that is not an indictment on serving in the military. Mm-hmm. That's a real indictment from guys like me who are legacy holders mm-hmm. that – that kid should be an easy number for a recruiter to roll yep. when the parent walks him in. But there's a lack of faith in the administrative level, the, the politics of this country always talking about each other instead of talking about how to help the country. And I think that that's something that we that really bothers us as military leaders because we do take all of those tenets 
uh, and and principles of leadership uh, to heart. Yeah, uh, we eat last. You yeah. know, just like you have in your your yeah. mantra on your website. It's like it's it's just something we do, and I always remind people as well. It, all, all the deployments and all the fighting I've done, there, there is absolutely no such thing as combat leadership, mm. just leadership. leadership yeah. You either lead or you do not lead. And I think I'm very fortunate to be in a position now where I can continue to lead and people ask me uh, to do that. I, I think it's um, a real privilege. Mm. Uh, but I also understand that whether you do four years in the military or 24 years, not everybody has the capacity to continue to do that. Mm. Not everybody has the drive to do that. And I think that having that capacity is, it's helped me. I, I mm. think that as an older guy dealing with a lot of trauma throughout my whole life, that just staying that busy always yeah. helps. And now I'm in a position, too, where I, I kind of reflect on it. Yeah. And uh, I'm pretty grateful for all that yeah. as well. And Jared I, Taylor and I were talking about this the other day about the legacy recruits and that being one of the biggest problems. So I would say... He and, I, he and I had a long discussion about this. I'd like to get your thoughts on it. I don't know that we have a recruiting crisis. I think we have an identity and purpose crisis, not just amongst the kids. I mean amongst the leadership and the military and the government, right? It's like mm. if the identity of the service member and the purpose you know, that they serve specifically in this time and place were good, we would have no problem sending our kids into that because – that's what we want for them is to live a life of service, right? Yeah. And they've robbed us of that opportunity, I feel like. Like, we're, how, how do you... Who robbed it? Who's the robber, though? Like, uh, well, I mean, circumstances. General officers, well. politicians. Po I would say politicians uh, are number one, and weak, cowardly general officers who are career politicians are, are probably a close second, I think, frankly. I think there's some truth to that. I think there's, there's a lot of ways to... To look at the the and it is it is a crisis. Mm. Um, it, it's a crisis by either way, sure. Um, yeah, because this this is uh, mm. uh, well. First, let me answer the the the, the robber part. It, I think there are thieves uh, within the military, the senior officer level, that once they're promoted to general officers, they quickly snap into the role of politician. Mm. And then there's politicians using the military for the wrong reasons. So that's where you have senior officers, senior enlisted leaders uh, really at odds with their service in the military because they don't like how the the politicians are using and implementing the military. So they've questioned the last 20 years of service mm -hmm. in some cases. Um, but, I, but I think that from a, a recruiting standpoint is the, the, what, there's so many hurdles in front of these recruiters. And instead of sitting around the VFW, by the way, and and trying to complain about the problem all day, Dan. I, I got introduced to a guy um, who started this revolutionary tech company called RevyPro in San Diego. And um, I, Ivan calls me up. And it was really just a friendly conversation. He talks about how he migrated to America mm -hmm. from Ireland. And he, he's you know been a citizen now for 10 years. So this boils over to this love of country and patriotism discussion. I says, hey, man, so tell me about this tech. And so he goes into this, and it's this revol revolutionary uh, platform that's uh, secure, controlled content. Imagine Indeed meets TikTok, mm -hmm. and it's talking to the Zoomers and Gen Y, because that, from a recruiting standpoint, is the biggest problem. Is guys like like me, at least in my generation, you're not Gen X. You're uh, I'm I'm on the board. You on the, I was I was born like in 81. Oregon so Trail. Right yeah. So yeah, you're right on the cusp, mm -hmm. but 
especially guys in the military, you know, I, was, I think I was talking to Mark actually in, in Dallas and, uh, I was talking about this recruiting crisis mm. and, um, you know, he was complaining about millennials and, you know, Gen Z. I said, man, you, you can't be one of those old mm. graybeards that says, I walked uphill both ways in the snow yeah. to school. I said, because now you're part of the problem. Mm. So this tech, as I start to unfold it, I said to Ivan, I said, hey, man, uh, you should really think about getting this in front of the military. Mm. And he says, well, Scotty, uh, do you know anybody? I said, well, as a matter of fact, I do. So since February... We've gotten this technology in front of every senior enlisted leader up to the chairman, joint chiefs of staff, and every C-suite level officer and sergeant major, operations officer um, from U.S. Army Recruiting Command to U.S. Navy Recruiting, mm-hmm. BUPERS, United States Marine Corps Recruiting Command, because this this tech is really targeting Gen Z and, and not even millennials. It's got to be Gen mm-hmm. Z and Gen Y. Yeah. And it is creating a bridge to cover those gaps. So. I'll use the Marine Corps example. They spend $300 million a year on their advertising agency. And during COVID, you know when the recruiting numbers were really suffering, you know what their answer was? Well, it's COVID. Well, what happens when there's another pandemic? And there will be in some way, shape, or form. How do you bridge that gap to continue to recruit 18-year-old kids? I'm telling you, it's not billboards on I-10 or Super Bowl commercials because they don't even watch commercials. And you have to be of the mindset to understand that these generations receive, consume, and digest, and then process information differently Mm. than every other generation because we're living in the information age. And if senior graybeard recruiters, commanders, senior enlisted leaders can't adopt to that, I really see that this this crisis is going to continually grow. Mm. And, you know, it's only a matter of time before a near peer adversary wants to pick a fight with us. Sure. And you know what? We never want a fair fight. Period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so we, we have to keep the advantage because of our navy and air force. We'll ne- we never will. Uh, but still, I mean, it's dangerous to think that way. We got China playing chicken with U.S. Navy warships in the Pacific. Ah, I think it's uh, they don't have Trident subs though. <laughs> no, they don't. But God forbid it would come to uh, you know launching some of those tubes. I don't. I don't think. Yeah, fuck that. Yeah, fuck that. Because then it's all all hell breaks loose. Uh, but the B twenty one's coming up soon too. That's going to be nice. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't. It, it's. Uh, I think for the first time in their in the history of the military of the U- U.S. military, military recruiters are, and, and the more so than the ground-level c- recruiter, the c- recruiting command and the advertising part are actually having to do their jobs. Because for the yeah. most part, it's been done for them a lot. But they're not right? leveraging technology. The no. way you were recruited mm-hmm. in the Army in 2004, 2005, it's mm-hmm. the same way they're doing it. I was recruited in 1988, and they're still doing it with business cards and yeah. pull-up bars. Yeah. You can't get in front of a 17-year-old kid who lives on his iPhone mm. with a business card. Well, 9-11 helped. Well, to God be forbid we should I know, have but to like if, if, park a few planes into buildings to, yeah. to light the fuse on American patriotism. But, you know, it would be a sad day. What but, concerns me is if it happened again right now, I don't think this, the response would be the same amongst the generation that I was in. You're not the happened. first person to make that uh, – you know, to, yeah. to think about that. I right? mean, because look at what's going on now. Uh, you know, Israel gets attacked – and everybody blames Israel. It's like, all right. I mean, look, they have plenty of problems like everybody else. Bibi Netanyahu is a fucking crazy person that's trying to get rid of the judicial branch of government over there. Got it. But that doesn't have anything to do with Hamas murdering a bunch of civilians. Uh, and I feel like if America got attacked today, a very large portion of our youth would be blaming us for it. 
I mean, look at how many people yeah. jumped onto this stupid Bin Laden trend on TikTok. I'm like, oh, he's got some good ideas. Like, no, he doesn't. He 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 referenced one more quote. reason I'm not on TikTok. I know he referenced a quote from fucking Ben Franklin that choice. didn't exist. It's like, oh, good. You, he's uh, Bin Laden uh, used ChatGPT to fucking write his Wikipedia-based article, and now you guys are falling for it just because you you hate. That's that's when there's an identity crisis in this country. You know what I mean? When you if when you and I were in high school, no matter what was going on with us, whether we were, you know, disaffected or depressed or angry or the fucking captain of the football team, we, somebody asked us what it means to be an American, we would have had an answer for that immediately, right? And kids today will not have an answer for that. Well, that's a, that's a pretty generalized, pessimistic. I've asked a lot of them. I, I, I think that. Their kids in a certain part of the country will definitely have an answer. I, I, again, I, I like to think that there, there is greatness in every generation. Mm. I, I'm, I'm never being accused of being a generationalist. I, mm. I think that no, it's not about that. But, we fucked them over. Is the problem? It's I, not. I no, don't blame the kids. We're, we're saturating them with so much misinformation and, and negative information, and this goes all the way from the user level, from a social media mm. platform, mm. all the way to mainstream media when. Yeah. If, if you're a young kid and your mom and dad have the news on and they see the politics on TV, it's nothing but infighting. It's mm. nothing but negative messaging. So, you know, try and wind the clock back, man. If you were a 16, 17-year-old kid, would you want to be involved in politics or um, have a huge sense of patriotism? I, mm. I agree with you. We, yeah. we are part of the problem. And the real question and challenge and call to action to – people who listen to this show or even us in the studio is how do you continue to inspire the next generation? Because yeah. it's your responsibility. Um, it, it's, it's a tough question. Mm. What do you do? Where do I go? Who do I talk to? And um, I, I tell you what, I, I was up <laughs> in the Reagan ranch center talking to a whole room full of like 300 high school kids. Like mm. that's a pretty uncomfortable position mm. for me. Uh, as a 50 year old guy, like, you know, you, you got to stand in front of a bunch of high school kids. Mm. So my teachers get so much, uh, of my, uh, you know, praise and it, to do that job every mm. single day. But yeah. as an outsider to go and try and do that, man, that's the, that's a million dollar question. Yeah. Well, I mean, we got to spend a little bit more time, uh, or a little less time being reactionary. Everybody wants to defend their position instead of explain their position. I think that's a problem. Yeah. Right? And it's a problem that's been brought on by the, you know, tumult, I guess, from, from the, the 24 hour news cycle. Everybody's kind of forced to have a strong opinion on things that have nothing to do with them, even sometimes. Yeah. Right? Like, oh, you don't feel this way about that? What's your problem? Like, I don't give a fuck about that, dude. Just like, you want to talk about sports or what? Yeah. You know what I mean? But well, the we, other thing too is there's so much. I mean, think about just the coverage of the wars. And then I was talking um, to some guys in the nonprofit space about all. I said, man, look, we have to change the messaging. Mm. Like all of this darkness and boozy vets and. Drowning you guys in combat gear and amputees across Super Bowl commercials. I said, you know, how are we? This is a very direct and indirect impact on our military recruiting establishment because what 17 year old kid is going to say, yeah, I'm going to go join the Marines and serve my country, get blown up, maybe lose a leg, and then I get to live under a bridge. Where do I sign? Like, no one is going to do that. So, how do we change the messaging to the positive benefits of military service and let them know that you can do four years or 24 years and, and, the benefits far outweigh the negative mm -hmm. stuff. And we, you're in a great position 
of responsibility to do that. So am I. When when you're out in front of large groups or you have a microphone and you can influence people like that, you got to tell them about all the great stuff. Well, I'm not going to do that. Because I don't think they should join the military right now. And I don't think you do either because you just said you wouldn't take your kid down there to join, right? I, I, would, I would be hard-pressed to push her towards military yeah, service. same. And yeah. I don't want to tell other people's kids that either right now because yeah. I think it's kind of fucked. I mean, so, like the situation, not telling them. If, if we were doing shit that mattered, and we do, like there's a lot of stuff the military still does that matters. I, I'm not going to be a pessimist about that. But if, if, I, if I didn't have a gut feeling that this or a future administration was going to send my buddies off to die again for no fucking reason, I would be pretty gung-ho about getting people to join the military, not just because of what it will do for the country, but for what it does for them to serve, right? I mean, it makes a... The the greatest generation was made great, not because they were great, because of their fucking service. That's what made them great, right? It's It took a bunch of uh, uh, young men and turned them into fucking great men, Right, and it benefited our country greatly. So you start ground up. That's that's how we always like to build. I would tell them in a heartbeat, go do this thing. It will make you better, right? And then as a result, it'll make our country better. So now I tell people to go join the sheriff's department or something. You know what I mean? So I don't know. I don't know how. Like I, yeah. I, I agree that the messaging needs to change because people aren't. It's not going to get better unless we put the right people in charge, right? And yeah. you can't put the right people in charge unless they start off at the lowest pot, right? So it's kind of a fucked up cycle that we're in right now well i I, i'm not anti-military and i I would not dissuade Mm -hmm. my kid from joining the military uh the level of enthusiasm has waned a little bit because of how they're used but and there are a lot of different ways you can serve um you don't have to be jumping on airplanes or Mm -hmm. kicking doors in your mind i mean it's funny it's it's fun more fun that way to be honest it is you know. But at the end of the day, all we get is bragging rights. Yeah, yeah, too, yeah so, it's true. You know. Bragging rights yeah. and fucking. I, I never liked being cold. I never like being wet. I never like getting up early. So really bad career choice for me. Join the, the Air board. Force. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's all I'll say but, about uh, that. They're not. They're not. That's not, all you get out of is bragging rights. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, but we have to, to your point about the messaging though. We have uh, an issue with gun violence, and we blame the guns. We have an issue with improperly prosecuted wars. And we blame the troops, you know, or service or whatever. We have this, we is, I don't know if it's the West or if it's just weak human beings that continuously push the blame as far downstream as possible instead of looking upstream for root causes. Yeah. Maybe because it's harder, maybe because there's a lot of industry between root and STEM. I don't know. You know? I, I think you're right because, and even in the military, which we're talking largely mm-hmm. about today is, even those violations of rules of engagement or law of war, how, how we practice our profession, the, the, real, the real sad part of all this, too, that, that eroded a lot of credibility is you didn't see any senior officers or any general officers getting relieved or mm-hmm. resigning or getting fired for the actions of those people that they ultimately commanded. Mm-hmm. And, and they, there has never been any ownership of that. So I, I agree with you that you know, that ownership needs to start at the top and go down, not the other way around, because that, that's an uphill battle, especially when you're talking about how you take your whole career of military service and then transition to what we do now mm. to continue to inspire young people to say, man, you should join, you should join the Marine Corps. And it's, it's, 
it's tough. Yeah, uh, it, it, it makes it more challenging even for guys like us. I mean, to be honest, I would be more keen on telling somebody to join the Marine Corps than the Army at this point because you're going to be on a mule. You're going to exfil some people from a bad situation more likely than I am. Like, I'm in the 82nd. These days, maybe I'll take over an airfield or something like that, right? Or, or go do Force Pro somewhere. But if you want to do something meaningful, I think the Marine Corps is probably the best. If you're a, if you're a ground pounder. Yeah. If you're it's, all, that, it's all timing, though. It is. Yeah, yeah you never so, know. Because yeah. then you join in fucking the late 2000s, you end up in fucking Iraq or yeah. Afghanistan. It, right? it, it is. Uh, be careful what you ask for. You yeah. just make Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Yeah, I remember yeah. when they don't when, join for college money. Don't do that. That's a mistake. I Unless you join the Air Force, then it's fine. All the they all, all are pretty good college programs, though. Yeah, I'm just saying the Air Force. You're not yeah. going to end up in a fuck sleep no. outside somewhere. You'll get no. hot chow three times a day. Yeah. <laughs> we uh, we saw Saddam getting pulled out of his spider hole, mm-hmm. and I thought, oh man, there goes my war, man. I'm not going to get another deployment. Yeah. And like five deployments later, I'm yeah, like, yeah, be careful what you ask for. Um. So. Tell me about the book. Tell me the story that this this is the book here. It's uh, Echo and Ramadi. Tell me about this. Tell me why you wrote it and what's in it. Well, it's it's really not a war story. It's mm. uh, I, I wrote it from a historical perspective, and despite the fact that you can see the image there, it's a Marine. Looks like he's going to kick your door down in the middle of the night and do bad things to you, which we are absolutely well trained to do. It's really a story about this, this power of human connection and, and people and the the best and brightest of our country who are thrown together under the worst circumstances in a city that um, was full of uncertainty and, and certain danger all the time. Um, and it's a story about, uh, you know, this love of one another mm. and the, the connection we have. And that includes and is extended to the brave Iraqi citizens and my interpreters that fought under my command and the families that supported us and our Gold Star families who lost sons and, and daughters throughout the last 20 years of war. And uh, I think it's a story about leadership at every level and, and how those young guys um, really just perform these superhuman acts mm. every single day. And, uh, man, I tell you, they never, they never failed to astound me. And uh, that's, yeah, I, I, I tell wrote, people that all the time that are trying to, um, I guess, empathize, like, oh, you guys must have had it rough there. I'm like, yeah, I saw the worst shit you can see, but I saw the best shit you can see too, yeah. right? So it's not all bad. I mean, it is, it's a bad situation, but, you know, character gets revealed in extreme situations, yeah. and you see men that you respected, and then you love them after. You know what I mean? It's different. It's hard for someone that hasn't experienced that, and the civilian who sees images on TV, like mm. what's going on right now in Israel. I mean, the city is 
just rubble, then that's mm. that's the environment we lived and operated in for months and months on end. But it's hard for people to comprehend that, that mm. there's so many beautiful things that are born out of war. Yeah. And uh, it's it's not limited to the the, the unique bonds that, that forge, you know, a unit on the battlefield for a lifetime. Um, I mean, for me, I was in a lot of units in the Marine Corps, but being a company commander mm. in Ramadi in 06 was like – being the quarterback of an NFL Super Bowl team. Yeah. That's the it's level of intensity. Memory. That's the one that sticks with you. Yeah. If people had to use the term pinnacle of mm. a career, and, and I did 24 years, <clears throat> that, that was the pinnacle of my career. And I'd been in other deployments, other combat deployments, but that fight at that time was just, um, it's everything we trained for and, and a lot of stuff we never trained for, Yeah, which was even harder at times. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it's... Uh... It was a different kind of situation because usually, like throughout history, there have been guerrilla wars before South America quite a bit through the eighties and and seventies and eighties and nineties. Um, guerrilla wars in the Middle East before to some degree, um, and then to some degree the French fought some guerrilla campaigns against the Germans, you know, back in the day. But for it to be the entirety of the war, to like have a piece of instead of going to Eindhoven and then to to uh, uh, Belgium and then to down to Germany and blah, 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 right? And just yeah. pushing through towns. I've got this piece. I've got this, like, 70-square-mile uh, uh, area, and I have to dominate this for a while. And behind every rock, there's a gun or a bomb, right? I, it's fucking weird. It was... It was it's always weird because that's your neighborhood. I live here now for the next however long. Yeah, and that might be... That might explode. It's fucking weird. I don't know if you can... I don't know how to... I don't know how to train somebody for that or how to rationalize that as a human being. Training for uncertainty is, is and boredom is probably one of the toughest yeah. things as a commander. You, you just there's no missing essential task list that yeah. says be bored. Well, yeah, we do have a program yeah. for that too in the Marine Corps. It's called duty. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, Iraq and Afghan vets. When, whenever I talk to World War II or even Korean War vets, mm. and they're, they're always astounded. Uh, how we fought and mm. you know, i always want to learn what they're doing yeah. how they fought during these great iconic battles but they are so quick to turn it around mm. because like every warrior throughout generations like they just want to know how we did it last mm. and uh, and make those comparisons because the the tempo and the the fluidity fighting in an urban battle especially in ramadi in 0607 again really redefined what urban fighting was and the the, the bloodiness of it all yeah. and, and how, how much toll that takes on us mm. because you're operating 24 hours living in the city mm. where it was different in the Pacific. Yeah. It was <clears throat> different in, in Vietnam where the, some of these great battles like Major General James Livingston who wrote the mm. forward to my book, who's a Medal of Honor recipient, in the Battle of Dido in 68, I mean, there was two Medals of Honor out of 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines, a couple Navy crosses, God knows how many silver stars and, and bronze stars for valor. It was a three-day battle. Um, and it, it wasn't this protracted yeah. urban battle that our, our soldiers and Marines had, had to fight for the last 20 years. So it was, it was different. But those guys, I always like comparing notes and how keenly interested they are in how the young men and yeah. women are fighting today. Well, you know what I would be interested in is how we're going to fight next because we've never gotten it right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Not yet. Um, and it was a big problem at the outset of this particular war because all of our field-grade officers and senior NCOs had never fought like that before. And they were the ones making command and tactical decisions. And, it, you know, it went as well as it could have gone, I suppose. But um, 
probably would have gone quite a bit better if the person in charge of it wasn't Paul Bremer, some statesman, right? Like you, uh, if you recall throughout history, it's been um, people like Eisenhower in charge of the war, not some fucking dude from the Department of Homeland Security or whatever, yeah. right? It's, it was very bizarre to me that we sent a civilian over to command that war. And say what you want about him. You know, he was there for the rebuilding process or whatever the fuck. No, he was there to fucking tell generals what to do. We've yeah. never, ever in the history of warfare done that. And I think that's like, it kind of shows you, like to what your point before, we never had a real goal there. Not, not a, not a well-spelled-out one anyways. Um, it shows you how dumb we were about yeah. prosecuting this particular war. I, and, and my concern is, along with, if you want to call it the recruiting crisis, uh, along with that, are we prepared in the same way that our near peers are to fight the, the new kind of war, whatever it happens to be? Are we, are we, can we fight an insurgency against somebody that's close to us, for example, mm. that, that has a bunch of their people embedded in our country already, for example, right? I, th- I think we can. I think it's just like that sine wave of peace and war I mentioned earlier is that organizationally, we lose that resident knowledge, all of those all of the sergeants, these 22-year-old kids mm-hmm. who fought under my commander, Ramadi, they, uh, they're all retiring now. Yeah. I mean, it's been you know, 17 years, uh, 18 years um, since that fight. All, all, the, all the officers. Are, How does that make you feel, by the way, that all of your junior enlisted guys are now I love retiring? It, <laughs> I love it. They grew up so fast. <laughs> I, but being connected to them, though, is uh, you know, I get invited to the, the promotion ceremonies or the retirement ceremonies even. And mm. uh, I've been retired next month for 10 years. Oh, wow. That's hard to believe. And, uh, but I still do stay very connected to those, those Marines. And uh, I, I love it. It always puts a smile on my face. And, uh, you know, one of the things I like to remind them, too, as they transition is not only the fact that those guys who are peers and stayed on active duty, like I, I remind them, like, look, man, you're going to have to unpack some of this somehow. Mm. And we're here for each yeah. other. Yeah. And the other thing I like to remind people, too, that I, w- I was talking to a good friend of mine. I don't know if you know Josh Mons. Did you ever read Beauty of a Darker Soul? Mm, I don't think so, no. So I was with Josh in Vegas um, two weeks ago at MCON with Waco Hoover. And uh, I, I just had burrito with Josh and Pete Turner, who hosts the Break It Down Show mm. podcast. And uh, Josh, a pretty deep dude, who was uh, shot through the femoral artery from a bullet that went through the neck of his platoon sergeant, killed him. Damn. Josh um, was down for not one, not two, not five minutes, 12 minutes flatlined. And so I said, man, we, we got to call Josh and, and check in on him because he's working on his PhD at, uh, at, in, in Vegas. And I was reminded to call him, thanks to Pete, because we were talking to Sebastian Younger. Mm. And he, Sebastian was telling me about this book he's coming out. I said, oh, your new book's coming out. Like, yeah, we got to be on the show. And uh, it's uh, about his near-death experience because mm-hmm. he lost like five quarts of blood from this, you know, condition he had. And so he writes about it. And Sebastian's just, you know, he's in the 20-pound brain club. He's, like, a, he's a very good writer. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's, he's amazing. And uh, I, I love having conversations with him, too, because mm-hmm. it's, it can be anything from sophomoric banner to like some deep mm-hmm. dives. But uh, I said, hey, you got to read Josh's book. And Josh talks about his near-death experience. So I said, man, you did not have a near-death experience. You had a you death a, experience. No, he's got a zombie experience, man. There is no reason that guy should be alive. 12 but, minutes is well beyond brain damage. Yeah. Him. Like, yeah, that's fucked. I mean, good for him, though. So, the, you know, the Army used Josh as a, a conduit for public speaking mm-hmm. and, and talking throughout his journey. And then, uh, you know, he, he went through every type of modality from... 
you know, farm to, uh, you know, psychedelics to now he's into this deep breathing and yoga and, and really finding out where he is centered as he goes through this process. And, you know, he goes out to Death Valley and he, he admires all these little microclimates after a rain. And so he's like, it's a really deep burrito, man. Like this is a, this is the most, you know, deep dive burrito we have between me, Pete and Josh. And he, has never gotten a brain scan too, by the way. All these all these doctors have never sent me to get brain scans, but now he's centered and he says to me, um, he goes, yeah, I'm, I'm not getting the brain scan. My brain is fine. I said, yeah, but through all this catharsis with all the stuff and all the badness and trauma boiling out of, this, out of the surface, mm-hmm. does any of the happiness pop up along the way? And you have this thought, you're like, man, that was a good thing. And this two hours of deep breathing reminding me that you know josh says i'm not a happy person <laughs> i said yeah but happiness is you know definitions are very yeah. he goes i'm content i'm a content person and mm-hmm. i beat him down a little more and uh you know i says hey man you do know you got to give some of this back yeah like you there will come a point where you have to share some of this and uh i i was uh telling him to be ready for that and you know the whole point of this story is you know guys who transition to get out of the military after serving and sacrificing their lives and, and bodies for you know 20 plus years i said you have to be receptive too mm. and i said i was riding my harley across the country for charity two years ago and i hit east texas it starts to piss on me the sky's gray and purple and i'm throttling down on my harley and i'm thinking to myself self you are 50 years old and you've done all this cool stuff what if i had another 50 years and then Josh, being the 20-pound brain in the room, he says, what if that first 50 years is X? And what if the next 50 years is X plus Y? Mm -hmm. Y being experience. Mm -hmm. And you gain all this wisdom and experience, um, and you apply it so it shortens the actual time span it has to do good things. The whole point of the story, too, is, is not this esoteric discussion we're having over burritos at Roberto's, but... It's to remind people, especially veterans and first responders, is that when you transition, you make it through all that trauma and all the sacrifice, you got to accept that reward. Yeah. You know, that reward mm-hmm. is the peace to not feel anxious or to appreciate nature mm-hmm. or listening to the sound of acorns falling out of the trees as you're hunting in, in North Texas. And, uh, those are real rewards, and I, I think a lot of people struggle with accepting the rewards. Like you earned it, man. Yeah, I was just talking. You don't to somebody. deserve anything, but you yeah, you yeah. have earned that. I, I was just talking to somebody about that this weekend. It's really hard for us because, you know, for a variety of different reasons, you know, in the moment, I guess, or or closer to an event, whether it's combat or death, it's hard to it's hard to appreciate what's going on around you because it feels it almost feels like a betrayal to forget that your buddies are dead and to move on and have a good life. But what, you know, if that's not what they would want. No, right? I mean, no, of course they wouldn't want that. You wouldn't want that if you would have been the one that died. You, you got so many people roll through the show, man. Um, I, you could probably speak to this, but I, I, I've come to find out that it's not really all of the seeing the worst of humanity, you know, mm. expose you at such a young age. Um, and all the all the things you have done and had to do at such a very young age, and to take another human life is one of those. But mm. I think as we come back, it's it's all the regrets you have. Yeah. What if I had done this? Not really for the guys I was fighting next to in this, you know, survivors guild. I don't mm. think is is again apples and oranges, but it's the things that you you don't do personally. Mm. I mean, the, those split second decisions or that 
that moment of fear that paralyzed you in the battlefield. I mean, let's face it, man. If if you're not scared, there's something wrong with you. Yeah, yeah. We call those yeah. people, you know, sociopaths. Yeah. But we weed those guys out before they even enlist in the Marines. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it's uh, it's interesting to think uh, how those people deal with that at such a young age. I was yeah. a 35 year old captain. Mm. Plenty of combat deployments mm. and life experience, but. You know, when a kid's 18, 19 years old, how they process that and then yeah. transition, be successful in life. That's why I love sharing all these stories of success with our in our veteran community, man, because there's so many people kicking ass out there mm-hmm. and doing great things that are not feeling sorry for themselves. And yeah, I mean, that's, you know, if you, if you get anything out of this stuff, this episode, it's like, don't, I, I like the X, Y thing. That's interesting. Like, operate with the experience that you have now, right? And then... I think a really important thing to understand, not just as a, a former warrior, but also just as a man and human civilization, that your service has not ended because you took off your fucking uniform. It's in some ways only just begun, right? Yeah. Because now you are, you're the elder in the tribe. Even if you're a fucking 30-year-old that just got out of the army after a year enlistment, you're the elder in that tribe and that community of kids who are going to go through this and have no idea how to traverse what's coming next. Right. There's no leadership uh, certificate or, or a commission or a promotion that has an expiration date on mm-hmm. it. And again, if you have the capacity to do that, I, I get it. Some guys want to hang up the rifle and they want to transition. They don't want to talk about it. That's fine. Mm-hmm. But there's plenty of others out there that are in a position that speak volumes for those who can't. And, yeah. and you should be, again, very privileged if you're one of those people. You are. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people that come <clears> through this is you're inspiring and whether you served in the military or not, Mm -hmm. um, you have that capacity to make a difference and be a great American. I I think that is the premise of this show too, is, you know, the title of it in itself Mm -hmm. is we have to be teaching civics lessons to all of these kids we meet and to our, our fellow peers, uh, you know, in the same age group. So they can continue to, you know, pick up that call to action and say, look, inspire, you know, mm. show them the greatness of this country because if you just open up the fire hose and turn on Fox News or CNN and that's yeah, all, that's your yeah, sole source yeah. of information, you're going to be drowning. Yeah, you're just going to be drowning in misery, man, because those are <clears throat> miserable platforms that, I mean, some are better than others, but, uh, man, they just continue to push a negativity. Yeah, yeah and to that point, you know, uh, people are going to learn more from your example than they ever learned from the shit that comes out of your mouth. You know, so you got to live that life. You got to put it on the line sometimes. Yeah, your feelings hurt today. Sorry, bud. I mean, it's, I, yeah, it's I, I've, I've had enough of all the uh, coddling of veterans. And I don't mean in a way that they don't deserve some fucking attention. That's not the case. But we're dudes. Like, you're not supposed to hug us when we're upset like that. You're supposed to be like, hey, dude, it's time to fucking work. You got shit to do. Let's get this going. You know what I mean? Like, you process the trauma. You deal with it. But it's time to fucking get to work. Now's not the time to feel. Now's the time to do. We can handle that bullshit later. We're in a little bit of trouble as a country right now. Stop whining. Get off your ass and do something. Not just because that's what we need is because what you need to heal yourself. That You will heal yourself. Um, Gandhi says if you want to lose yourself, find uh or if you want to truly find yourself lose yourself in the service of other people right that's a very common theme throughout all of human history you'll find it in the stoics you'll find it all throughout western civilization it makes a lot of sense because that's what we were built to do right so that's my admonition to anybody listening to this shit if you have been part of some of these battles or 
one of your own battles. Uh, you're not going to find yourself in the bottom of a fucking bottle or pills. You're not going to find yourself whining in a corner somewhere. You're not going to find yourself as one of these Sigma males who have tuned out of society. The only place you will find yourself and your purpose is in the service of other people. That's my take on that. Any thoughts? I agree a hundred percent. I think, uh, I said it earlier, you know, if you're not helping someone else, um, besides yourself, mm. um, you, you, you know, it's all for not. Yep. I wake up every day and, and try and do that. I, I try and subscribe to, you know, that rule of four is you know, every day I, I, I get up and I like to read the, mm. the right stuff, educate yeah. myself, um, for time. I like to do something physical. I like to put myself in uncomfortable positions. Mm. Um, not, uh, contortion wise but yeah, yeah maybe it's that yeah. group of high school students who are yeah. coming into a strange studio it's like i'm driving down here from you know uh you know weatherford texas i'm like man i wonder where the studio like is it like a trailer park or something she, i have no idea well, it sort of is there's a trailer out it there is kind of, it's kind of it's getting like a barn dominium type feel outside <laughs> but uh and the last thing i like to do is to <clears throat> do something for someone else besides myself mm -hmm. i think if you can do that even if you if you were capable of doing it for four hours a day you think about that you got another 20 hours in the day. Mm -hmm. Do whatever you want with. But yeah. the days I don't do it, I don't beat myself up either. It's like, ah, oh, I missed. I didn't. I don't know if I really helped someone today. Or I sat on the couch all day or I didn't do something physical. But those days are very rare. Yeah. I think it keeps you balanced. Yeah, it does. It keeps you balanced. Yeah. And mostly it reminds you that life's not about you. You know what I mean? Uh, the most self-centered people are going to be the most miserable always. Yeah. Always, and it's, it's not it's poison. It's not lost in me uh, on any given day, though. Too that uh, you know, guys like us that we we do a lot of talking, mm -hmm. but they're in small, captured periods of time. But we also do because yeah. like, there is a time for talking. You have to inspire. You have to have sure. messaging. But there's also a time for action. And uh, you know, from what I've seen, this all the guys that are in our tribe, and mm -hmm. you know, we could name drop for hours. But um, everybody's doing something. Yeah. You know, they're doing something to make a difference to help someone else, and I think that's laudable. For sure. That's the uh, that's what's really important about it. It's what builds civilization, and it's what sustains it. Yeah. Um, well, look, I appreciate you coming today. This book is really good. It's called Echo and Ramadi, the first-hand story of U.S. Marines in Iraq's deadliest city, uh, and that is Ramadi. It is uh, very good. It's it's a, a ground-pounder perspective, but also from a command level, which I don't think we've gotten about any of these major conflicts before, which is it's very interesting the way it was written. So I appreciate you coming today and talking about it. Absolutely my honor, man. And thank you all for listening. This has been Citizen.